I'm Judy Stewart and you're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or even mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. Today's guest, Maggie Beer, can best be described as professional cook, businesswoman, extraordinaire, writer and advocate, and all-round Australian national treasure. Since I recorded this interview with Maggie, just before Valentine's Day this year in Adelaide, she experienced the incomprehensible, suddenly losing her much-loved daughter Saskia. Saskia, 46, died that Friday night suddenly but peacefully in her sleep. Maggie and her family have been in the thoughts of the many Australians who have long felt a strong sense of attachment to the Beer family ever since. Out of respect, I have held the interview back until now. But Maggie's important public work, championing nutritious and more appetising food in nursing homes in the interests of the health and mental well-being of their occupants, is only just beginning. So while Maggie considers what her next steps will be, I want to return to how she came to be our nation's most prominent advocate for the very old in our community and the quality of the food that is put on their tables. How she got to this point and why at 75 she is still so trusted, so much in demand, so loved and so important to all our futures is told in this interview. Let's turn to Maggie. The one skill I learned at school was to touch type. In the days when we would have an apron over the keyboard so we couldn't cheat and we had to and I had very dexterous fingers so I could type it a hundred words a minute and and still can. That typing was the thing that really set me apart and enabled me to get a whole kind of jobs when I was so young and so inexperienced. But once I travelled to Europe was the 60s and so all you had to do was have grit and determination and drive and I've always had those three things. Mm. When did the cooking really kick in then? Where was the moment of revelation where you thought, ah, this is what I want to do? Well, it was right in front of my nose and it was about necessity in that my husband Colin's vision was to farm pheasants. That was the beginning in that we were farming pheasants and no one knew how to cook them. And did Colin realise he'd married Maggie Beard? <laughs> <laughs> he says his life would have been very different. <laughs> but yes. I mean, because you made them taste so delicious mm. as well. Yes, and that's purely because I inherited an instinct for food. So I've never been taught I just feel food. And that's a lovely thing to have. And I see it in my family as well with my elder daughter, Saskia. She just has it. We don't have to be taught or, or follow recipes. We just know. And I'm sure it's in a lot of people, but it's about opening your mind and confidence. I think that's called genius, Maggie, <laughs> when you know. So from such a varied background, what do you think is at the bedrock of your success? That's the needing to learn. If I'm not learning, I've never been happy. That's what excites me, is learning or ideas. I was thinking of how easy it could be to get into an exciting job by just showing that you had gumption and, and drive. And so I got a job with the American government when we first married 
and they put me through citizenship law as their clerk. And then I managed the Women's College at Sydney University in food and the house. So these things were easy to step into because you could show that you could apply yourself to almost anything. Was that important when you were considering writing books? No, no, no. The writing of the books was just one of those throwaway lines. And it was merely that Tony Love of The Advertiser asked to see me one day and he and Nigel Hopkins said, there's this Stephanie Alexander in Melbourne and we need one here and we think you're it. And I said, no, 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 I don't write. I have never written. And they said, uh, well, just do the first one. And so it all happened purely by the fact that I can type so quickly, which sounds a bit crazy. But I, on the Sundays at the Pheasant Farm that was so huge, every Sunday we do 80 people a la minute. And I would say to the team, okay, what's the most exciting ingredient we've used today? And so let's say it was beetroot was in season and I'd done it three different ways. And so we'd toss that around the kitchen. I'd go into my office and it was a typewriter in those days. And I'd close my eyes and just write about it. And I'd not even read it and just send it on. And that's how it happened. I'd never thought of writing until then. And then Julie came into my life. Julie Gibbs. Yes, Julie Gibbs came into my life about a year or so later. And she had the hard task of editing. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's amazing, yeah. isn't it? As someone who's struggling writing a book at the moment, that's wonderful. Well, it's being able that your fingers can move as fast as your brain. That's what I had mm. that made it possible. I want to jump to the years in the Barossa Valley where you had made a decision to walk away from the restaurant. And I've seen the word burnout yes. used. My word is pause. How did your burnout manifest itself? It was all one day Colin came in to the kitchen and said, you're burning yourself out, it's the restaurant or me. And I didn't even waver. I would never have made the choice myself if he hadn't have put the ultimatum to me. Mm. And of course it was him that I um, uh, chose. But the thing was, we went out on such a high, but it took me a year to recover, because mm. I was indeed burnt out. Mm. And the exhaustion, after all the adrenaline, the mm. exhaustion came upon me. And then the reason for being was lost mm. for that year. So it was a big thing. And what do you remember doing that actually got you out of that? I remember it really well. I had two phone calls. One was Anne Summers rang me and said, Maggie, I'd like you to write a column for The Good Weekend. And Stephanie Alexander, a day later, rang and said, I think we all should go on a holiday to Italy. And all of a sudden, I just totally perked up and I had a new reason to start again, but it was a year of sleeping. To follow that through for a moment, because I love that book. The story of the holiday in Italy with Stephanie. Yes, well, we went on this holiday, and in fact, 
Julie Gibbs was with us, there were eight of us, and we had this fabulous holiday in Umbria. It was really, really very, very special. And while we were there, sitting under the fig tree in the morning, Stephanie and I said to each other, how can we afford to come back for a protracted time? Oh, let's have a cooking school and let's find a place in Umbria and we'll have this amazing time. And so we did, but it took 80 months of organization and well, in fact, finding the right place. And out of that came the Tuscan cookbook that Julie was responsible for pushing us to do, which has been an amazing book for both of us. Yeah, hugely successful yes. and printed in many languages. Seven languages it's been printed in. You've had many ways of expressing your voice. Was there a single thing that really established you as a definitive voice in the conversation about food? We started the farm shop in 79 and within the year we had morphed into the restaurant because it was quite obvious that we couldn't make it work as a farm shop. And in about, so that was 1980. In 1981, Penny Smith came and did a major story for Epicurean. And that was the first touch of, we obviously were doing something right. And so, that rather buoyed the confidence, because it's always about developing your confidence, isn't it? Well, it has been for me. And then in 1984, there was the first symposium of gastronomy um, held here in Adelaide, um, way ahead of its time. Michael Simons, Barbara Santage, there was Chong Lu. It was just such an exciting time. And that's when I met Stephanie. And that symposium of gastronomy brought us all into a world of how important food was. Mm. But as an individual voice, it was, I guess it was a slow burn, although it was being put in touch with each other as a network. And I remember Don Dunstan was, um, had become my great friend and he- The premier of South Australia oh, yes. at the time. At and the very time. glamorous one. <laughs> a very that. glamorous one. And through a mutual friend and he had this great belief and talked about it at one of the symposium of gastronomy as if we'd done something really special. And all I saw we were doing is, I'm a produce-driven cook, I was cooking our produce and, and I had this very direct market that loved what I did. So his belief in me definitely helped. Right, it gave you that affirmation yes. that you were, yes. yeah not even probably looking for, but it came. No, no, in fact, I, I remember him saying it at a symposium and I, I slunk down in my chair mm. with, with embarrassment. Ah, <laughs> but it obviously stayed with you. It did, it did. So Maggie, the timeline for Maggie Beer, the brand, and the branded products, because I understand that when you were at the restaurant, you were starting to make a Maggie Beer. Oh yes, we're right from day one. Right from day one. Yes. So that was just coming along yes. quietly it was on the side. Absolutely on the side. It was just part of what we did for the restaurant. And I remember the very first block of pate 
we sold in Adelaide to Gulf Seafoods. That was the beginning of seeing that we had a sale outside of the restaurant to help iron the bumps out in the restaurant. Always busy on the weekend, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday could be really quiet or could be overrun. You could never tell. And so I used to make the pate after lunch service was finished and before picking up the girls from school in little household food processes, mm. <laughs> burning one out yeah. after the other. Yeah. Yes. And then from there, you diversified still further, but always linking back to the districts and your own farm, the things that you Absolutely. were growing. And... Absolutely. Well, we planted the olives, we had quince orchards, so we made quince paste for the restaurant. We made it then in a bigger way, in little boxes for sale. I pickled quail's eggs and then the verjuice. That was 1984, um, the first verjuice that I made with my friend Peter Wall, who was at Yolumba. You really put verjuice on the map, didn't you? No one in Australia had ever heard of it. No, and I'd only known about it by reading, I would read books about regional cooks in France that were women and because I felt a connection mm. and I would read about Veju and when you're so steeped in food you can taste as you read. We were grape growers and therefore it interested me immediately but then the first year we couldn't sell our Rhine Riesling grapes and we made Verjuice and then in effect the rest of the world has followed commercially mm. but it took 20 years to bubble up out of very small mm. beginnings. Mm. So you've really created quite a big empire but still kept it as personal as you could. Oh absolutely, well I had no idea I was developing a brand because we didn't have any sort of grand plan, but I was learning all the time. Mm. This quest for knowledge has always been there. And I had this amazing public that would take on anything I did. And I was a control freak and wouldn't leave the stoves, but I'd love the feedback. And even though we've sold the business, I am still connected with the business and do product development. I will always have that ability to influence the business because the people that have bought it don't want to see the brand diminished mm. and I certainly don't so I will always have an overview of it which is part and parcel of what I needed to be able to sell. But even so Maggie it must be difficult to have been so closely identified with that and for it to have your oh, name. So did you shed a few tears? Oh did I ever. It was a very big decision to make but neither of our daughters wanted the business and if they had of it would have been quite difficult because they could have never afforded to buy in because for mm. 40 years we just put everything back in the business and therefore Colin and I could never as he puts it have our time in the sun and now I'm 75 that was the point I said perhaps I'd start to slow down mm. when I'm 75. But did you ever think at that point that slow down yes did you ever consider retirement at that point no. did you ever think oh I might go and start playing croquet? Or... Oh no no, no. I, I always said I will never retire and I never will but I certainly understand the need for balance I'm a very late starter yeah but the need for balance the need for us to be free I see the need 
that we are fit and strong and we need to have the opportunities to take some time for each other. Colin must be very relieved. <laughs> I think he is. <laughs> no, but that is so mm. important, the balance. Yeah. I mean, we talked about burnout before, mm. but the balance. Do you try and have a little bit of time every day just for yourself? Ah, oh, I'm working on that. But I do try not to take on anything on the weekend for the first time in years. I try to say the weekends are ours or with friends, but the freedom of that time in the garden has become so important to me that I realise I need to get to the situation where I don't start till later in the day. So I take time every day in the garden for an hour. And what about music, Maggie? I know that's been another theme. Music's been at the heart of my life, every moment of my life. I come from a very musical family on my father's side and my father and his brothers and two of the three sisters were so musical. Classical music was every day of my life. The ABC was the first thing on in the morning and still is with mm. us. And so this, this love of music. You have a voice. Uh, oh, a I, singing voice? Well, yes, I, I love to sing, but I didn't start to sing till I was 60. And that was because I had the most beautiful mum in the world and she had the worst singing voice that anyone ever heard. And so my brothers and I never joined in this world of music in terms of the singing of it. And until I was about 60 and I realised the joy I was having singing with a group of friends at a party in the Barossa and I said let's have a choir and that's how it all started. Mm. So how many in the choir? Uh, 17 of us. And is it still the core of those friends or have you taken in uh, some? I, no, it's the same core of about seven of us and then others have ebbed and flowed because it's quite a commitment. It's every Wednesday night. Yeah, so how place. do you do that, Maggie? Because you have so many commitments. Uh, well, I try and organise my life. So I'm always home Wednesday night. So even at times when I'm filming, I say, I've got to be back Wednesday night. Right, so you prioritise that. I totally prioritise, but sometimes I can't avoid being away. But even then, everybody still comes to the house. Even if Colin and I are both away, they mm. still come to the house. Mm. Do you have dinner? No, no, no. This It's 7 o'clock to half past 8 or 9 o'clock. And it's a learning thing where we just get better and better. Um, and who chooses the repertoire? Oh, Charmaine Jones is our leader. She was the senior jazz teacher at the conservatorium, but she is... Um, uh, an artist, um, a solo artist in her own right, and has a professional choir as well. You were made Senior Australian of the Year in 2010. Yes. And I understand that that was a watershed in terms of the direction that you were going to take. Yeah, I didn't know it at the time though because it was such a surprise. Um, and that year of being Senior Australian, I had 900 requests to speak. So I had to judge what could I do, what can I manage and where could I make the most impression, I guess. And that turned out to be being asked to speak to a thousand CEOs of aged care as a keynote speech for their annual 
conference in Tasmania. Now, on my lap of honour, if you like, around Australia, I'd visited remote communities and aged care homes. And so when I was asked to do this speech, I did a whole lot more research and visited very directly with in mind what did I think I could make a difference yes. with to prepare for the speech. And I put a lot of work into that and uh, a lot of ideas, but I was also very naive. If you can imagine giving a keynote speech when you thought most of them didn't want to hear you. Now Maggie, completely nerve-wracking. I can't imagine how much preparation. Did anyone supply you with any resources to help prepare that speech? No, 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 and I never asked, never thought of asking because I knew what I wanted to do. And there were two people that were at that conference who after the talk got in touch with me and that has changed my life. Forever. <laughs> so this was the genesis of the foundation. But it took about two years to decide what to do. And in the end, I realised I had to do something very much more. And so decided on the foundation as the way to gather people around me that could add so much to uh, what I initially hoped to do was just change the food. So the charter of the foundation is? It's to show how you can do beautiful food within a reasonable budget for those who are in aged care to give them the well-being they deserve so they can live out to the end of their life with pleasure as well as nutrition. So flavour had to be dominant. Flavour and all the things that are so important. Without pleasure, without protein, without the nutrients necessary for a body to be as strong as is possible, then it's too limiting a life. I've watched some of your advocacy efforts in quite difficult environments, really. But you come across as the voice of wisdom and learning and experience and also respect for the older people in our community who need to be looked after better. I also have respect for so many people in aged care working so hard with so many difficulties around them, whether it be budget, whether it be knowledge, skill, whether it be culture, all of those things. There are so many people who care so much and have limitations. What I have tried to do and I believe been doing is make them believe that they are the person that can make the most amazing difference to everyone in their orbit. When you can give them the belief, the cooks and chefs, the belief in the difference that they can make to every resident every day of their lives till the end of their life and give them the skills as to how to do things differently and to bring others on board and find another champion within their home because the whole of a home has got to be involved in this but it can start with a cook or chef and then respect them and value them and listen to them. We have seen over five years now the difference that we can bring about by giving the cooks and chefs the approbation they deserve. 
And Maggie, you're obviously operating at two levels then. You've got the foundation training yes. and skilling people up and giving them the wherewithal to deliver. Yes. And then you're the advocate in many ways. Yes, yes. Well, absolutely. Advocacy and education were the the really big things that the foundation wanted to drive. That so you're actually you're at exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Absolutely. And you're exactly the right person. Do you feel a bit like Winston Churchill when he became <laughs> Prime Minister and war had just been declared with Germany and he said, all of my life has been leading me to this point? Well, in a kind of way, yes. I mean, Stephanie Alexander and I often joke with cradle to the grave. Food is so important in all of our lives and we both have something to contribute. And yes, timing, timing and grabbing opportunity is part of what it takes in life to move forward and the timing could never be more perfect than it is now and so a tremendous amount of work and energy is going into this right now. So Maggie if you were listening to this podcast right this minute what would you encourage that listener to do to help? How could we accelerate your progress? Well like all not-for-profits having funds to keep going is really really important so, so going to your website which is www.maggiebeerfoundation.org.au and the ability to donate but our ability to get to large corporate bodies that might have a real interest in understanding the difference that they can help us make with going ahead. It's not just money though, it's it's skill of volunteers that have very specific skills that might have a day a week or a day a month to give us to help us put repositories of knowledge together to help keep a larger network of all the cooks and chefs, help them to keep on learning from us and learning from each other. So it's all about having more help. It is all there and we know how to do it. We just are so under-resourced. It seems to me that everyone at least my age has a vested interest in seeing you succeed <laughs> because if that's how it's all going to end, yes. then you'd like to think that you'd be eating really nice food, not horrid, yeah. awful food, when the time comes. Exactly. And I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone that, that they care about that might be in or need to go into aged care. But it's not just the homes we want to deal with. It's those in the community because the carers, the government wants to keep people in their in homes, homes more. Yeah. So we're trying to straddle both. Well, I can say, Maggie, that I did go to your foundation website the other day and it is very easy to donate. <laughs> and yes. I encourage the listeners to get on board because it's a really wonderful cause. And Maggie, who would have thought that 14-year-old girl would end up being the champion of beautiful, delicious, nutritious food in aged care 60 years later? It's amazing. Maggie, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I can't thank you enough for your time. So Maggie started with a pheasant farm and ended up with a foundation. On the way, she became ambassador for the wine and food growing region of the Barossa Valley, where she took the very best produce the valley had to offer and turned it into a business and brand which will forever define her. How did she do it? 
First, she looked around her to see what she had at hand to work with. The region she and Colin adopted as their home was at the heart of everything she did. It was there that she honed her skills and applied herself to learning how to fashion and market the food she cooked into a way of life that synchronised perfectly with the culinary awakening taking place around the world. Food wasn't just sustenance, it could be wonderful as well. I was drawn in by how she found books and recipes from women who had lived for centuries in comparable climatic regions in France to understand how they cooked their game birds and processed the fruit from their orchards and vineyards. Out of such studious beginnings was Maggie's most famous product, Verjuice, resurrected and bottled commercially for the very first time, it turned out, but only when a crop of grapes remained unsold and she astutely turned it to account. Financial imperatives were, unashamedly, the driver of many of her creative efforts, beginning with the Pheasant Farm Cafe and eventually the pastes and pâtés, jams, oils and ice creams that still carry her name. All played a part in getting the family onto a firm financial footing. And when she began to write the recipes down, she didn't sweat it. She tapped out her recipe of the week in no time on Sunday afternoons after the lunchtime service and little by little forged her identity as an important figure in the culinary awakening of the 1980s. She let someone else manicure the notes. She'd already done the creative work that only she could do. I don't want to forget the way she always prioritised her lifelong love of music as a non-negotiable part of her otherwise hectic life. Never one to do things by halves, she engaged Charmaine Jones, a highly regarded teacher of vocal performance technique, to work with the group. If anything is the hallmark of Maggie's MO, it must be that determination to do what she does as well as she possibly can. I want to finish by talking about the Maggie Beer Foundation, a project that came out of that talk she gave to a thousand CEOs in the aftermath of her year as Australian of the Year in 2010. To researching that speech, not only made her a master of her subject, but struck a deep chord within her. Before long, it had set her on a new path. She's not shy to say that only two of the thousand who heard her actually got in touch, but then she only really needed two to get her on her way. There's a lesson in that. It's been encouraging to see Maggie pop up on Instagram TV in recent weeks, in her home kitchen in the Barossa, recording short demonstrations of some of her most loved recipes for an audience of home cooks who, like her, are spending a lot more time thinking about what's for dinner than they probably have for a long time. It's vintage Maggie. It's been a tough year, but that spirit and warmth shines through. We're all with you, Maggie, always. Thanks to Maggie Beer for coming on the podcast and to Julie Gibbs for orchestrating one of the most wonderful days I've had since I began the podcast. Maggie eventually cooked dinner for us both after all the work was done and what a night it was and on a Monday too. And thanks to Leonie Marsh and the sound team who helped pull this together, lockdown or not. Until next time, if you've enjoyed this, send me a message at hello at unpause.net and I'd love you to sign up for the newsletter on the website. Also, if you think you know someone who might enjoy this, please share it. I'm Judy Stewart. This is Unpaused. Until next time, farewell. <laughs>